It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker, David Ivan. Dr. Ivan is the director of the Community, Food, and Environmental Institute at Michigan State University Extension. He has been nationally recognized for his research on successful community change and vitality. I really look forward to this session. Dave, welcome to South Carolina. Thanks. Take it away. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me okay? They just turned my mic on, super. Well, it's great to be here today, and we're gonna talk about hope. We're gonna talk about hope, and kind of unpack it in terms of what you as community leaders can do to create a hopeful vision that leads to action in your communities. I want to start my presentation by acknowledging some sources that we kind of gathered to put this presentation together. First, the Gallup organization, probably you're familiar with them, they do a lot of survey work, right? You know, survey says. So we've been looking at a lot of their research actually over the past 20 years. A colleague of mine, Dr. Shane Lopez, wrote a great book, I highly encourage it, called Making Hope Happen. And we took some parts of that book and kind of weaved it into this presentation. And then I have a, the benefit of having a great research team at Michigan State where we go out and we study communities. And we try to find out what makes some communities more successful than others. And really what we found is that it's all about leadership. At the end of the day, those communities that are performing better than their peers have strong leadership. But as we kind of dive deeper and really peel back the layers, what we found in the most successful communities is they actually provide hopeful and visionary leadership. Hopeful and visionary leadership. And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. So let me ask a question. What's hope? What does hope mean to you? Anybody can just shout out an answer. Yeah. Aspirations, aspirations absolutely. Positive aspirations, usually, right? Yeah. Any other? Optimism. Optimism. Absolutely. Yes. Anybody else? Promise, I love it, yeah. So I think for the, what was that? Perseverance, Perseverance. absolutely. Absolutely, now you're not raising your hand to answer the question, right? You're calling someone over, right? Okay, no, no, that's good. <laughs> that's good. So for the purpose of this presentation, I'm gonna define it in two ways. First is that hope is a belief that the future will be better than the present, okay? The future will be better than the present. And we'll call that kind of willpower. Make sense? But I think that's only half of the equation. The other half is a belief that we have some power, some abilities to make it so. We'll call that way power. So a belief that the future is going to be better and we're kind of driving a bus, and we can make it happen. So as I talk to you today, we're going to kind of focus on those, or that definition. So I want you to think a little bit in terms of what your hopes 
and dreams are. Just pause and think, all right, what is my hopes and dreams? Perhaps for your community, all right? In your mind, think about it. Now, I mentioned that we worked with the Gallup organization, and they've been asking this question for over three decades, for 30 years, actually almost 40 years. And surprisingly, the results haven't changed that much. Oh, people kind of change with a little bit of wording that they use. But by and large, when a Gallup asks this question, what are your hopes and dreams, it really falls into three buckets. The first is that individuals want a good job. Secondly, they want a happy family. And thirdly, they want a great life. A good job, a happy family, and a great life. Now again, they probably use different words, but at the end of the day, as they kind of synthesized the data, it kind of fell in these buckets. All right. So let's kind of unpack this a little bit. What do they mean when they say a good job? Well, really what they're talking about is some type of occupation that really meets their household needs. And actually with COVID, this became even clearer in terms of what people are asking or what they want from an occupation. They want to meet their household needs. And secondly, they want to be engaged at some level, particularly the younger generation, right? They want to feel that they're making a difference in their work. Secondly, happy family. Well, what does that mean? Well, they want their family physically located nearby. Again, that spiked during COVID. They want to be close to their family. They want to have a sense of togetherness with their family. And lastly, the great life. And this one has a few more elements to it. They want to have a level of social connectedness with others. They want to have some financial security, again, back to that job, but they're not looking you know, to win the lottery, although they wouldn't hate it, right? But not really about wealth, but just financial security. They want to be physically well. They want to have a purpose in life. And the community that they reside in is doing well. There's a sense of community well-being. And as leaders, as I circled a couple of them here, you have the ability, frankly, to directly impact some of these elements, right? In terms of social connectedness and how we physically locate things in our community, in terms of providing a purpose in life and community well-being, as well as some of the other things in terms of a happy family and a good job. So what we've seen as we've studied communities over and over is that the best leaders are providing a good job. They're saying, what can we do to enhance family happiness? And are we providing, are we providing a good life for our citizens? Those three things. Because as leaders, there's a lot of distractions, right? You get torn in a lot of different ways. And what we've seen is that the focus leaders say, man, let's just kind of keep our eye on the ball. These are the three things that matter most to our individuals. Really, at the end of the day, what they're doing is providing hope. 
They're providing hope to the citizens that reside in their community. So I'm going to show a little video here to kind of give you a sense in terms of what that looks like. With the right perspective and the right ideas, you can take a, a community that a lot of people had unfortunately written off and, and begin the, uh, the long process of, of revitalizing it. Braddock was once a community of over 20,000 residents and underwent a, a mass exodus of over 90% of its population. That's translated into the loss of 90% of our building stock, housing stock, and also businesses. Braddock currently now is uh, Allegheny County's poorest community. Never expected to become mayor, but uh, Braddock is the first place that I've ever considered home. I think what makes my case perhaps a little bit more unique than some others is that I was elected by those very disenfranchised young people and ultimately I carry their banner because I won by the, the slimmest of margins by one vote. It, it's really kind of a balanced approach. We care for the community that we have and then we also seek to reach out to um, other members of the, the outside community to bring them in for additional energy, ideas and insights. We've got a lot of great partners for the youth program. We have uh, Key Service Corps, which is the Allegheny County's AmeriCorps program. We were able to open our playgrounds for the first time in many years back in 2006, not to mention any number of service projects that occur here and around the community where they come out and, and fix up, whether it's the community garden um, and also helping staff the urban farm. It's really an opportunity for somebody who wants to be able to take a space, buy a house for six or seven or eight thousand dollars, make it their own, and really be part of what I think is really an organic grassroots community building. Because of that approach, individuals coming in from outside the community are always very well received. You know, white, black, red, blue, no matter where you come from, everybody appreciates a good neighbor and that's what it's about. It's, it's bringing in people that can value and, and, and save the spaces that we've lost here in Braddock, what remains of the spaces we have. So, John Fetterman, do you think he's providing hope in Braddock? Absolutely. I mean, think about it. 90% of your buildings are empty. The population has declined by, what do you say, like 85%? And so what they're left with is really very little. And they said, but we're going to have a new future. And we're not going to talk about what we don't have or what we used to have, but we're going to talk about what we can have in building the new future. That's hope. That's hope. John Fetterman, by the way, is now the um, lieutenant governor in the state of Pennsylvania. He's, uh, he's moved up uh, in the ranks there. So hope does matter. I contend it's really a choice. I mean, we can be hopeful or we can be Debbie Downers, right? I also contend that it can be learned. I think that story about Braddock, Pennsylvania kind of shows that people become hopeful and they learn of new practices. And it's contagious. It's contagious in a good way. 
Not like COVID. In a good way. So I'm going to have a cautionary note, though. Who's rented a car here before? Raise your hand. Yeah, probably about two-thirds, maybe more, three-quarters of you have rented a car. Have, ever, have any of you that raised your hand washed your rental car before you took it back? You did. All right. You must have been rough on your rental car. One, maybe two. Yeah, a few people did. The majority of you didn't, right? I never have. Why not? It's not mine. It's paid for, right? Biggest thing, it's not mine. I don't own it. I think there's a lesson kind of hidden there, a message. People don't work for goals they don't own. So think about your community, right, as community leaders. Are we sometimes asking people to wash the rental cars, right? And as we listen to John Fetterman and Braddock, people were engaged, right? They felt they were part of the vision that he had laid out to move his community forward. So as community leaders, we have to be cautious not to ask people to wash the rental cars, right? And we have to engage them in saying, all right, how are we going to move our community forward? Let me give you an example of a real community. I'm going to keep them anonymous to protect the innocent. But this is a community in Indiana I visited as part of our research. And they said, I got to go see what's happening in this community. And so we took a team down there. And this was actually recognized by Matt's counterpart in Indiana called AIM, Accelerating Indiana Municipalities, as the Indiana Community Achievement Award winner a few years ago. And when you walk in the community, you could see, wow, they're really doing a lot of stuff here, right? I mean, they had a local entrepreneur, a very wealthy individual, who says, you know, I want my community to sparkle. And he reached into his pocket and invested it in his own money to create what his vision was for this community, and that was to have a, an artist destination and creating an artist colony. You can see some of the buildings he built that actually house different artists. And then they went one step further in terms of looking at the infrastructure. They buried the utilities and, and enhanced different streetscapes. This community sparkled. But I'm a sociologist by training. And so I like to talk to people, right? And there's always another side of the story. So this particular community is the home of a very conservative Christian college that's been part of this community's fabric for a long, long time. It has a reputation of being one of the few dry counties in Indiana. Now, we know that artists tend to be a little more free-spirited, right? So this person's vision in terms of where he wanted to take his community and really where the community's values were, really were in conflict, particularly among the locals. And the artists were frustrated because no one really looked at it as a destination. A number of them packed up and learned. Unfortunately, that individual was asking people to wash their rental cars. So as we look at it, we really have to 
look at both sides of those equations in terms of saying, okay, what can we do to move our community forward in a way that has both willpower and way power together? We learned a valuable lesson, we as America, when we were doing some international work through USAID over in Africa back in the 60s and 70s. You know, they were starving. And we took livestock there to help them farm. And they were starving, and they ate the livestock. And we're like, oh, we were hoping that you would use that as breeding. What we didn't do was provide that way power. We didn't work with them shoulder to shoulder, our colleagues, our brothers and sisters from Africa, in terms of saying, here's some agricultural practices. And that's important. So it's not just hoping that the future will be better, but we wrap around that, the how, right? How's it gonna happen? I think one community that does it very well is Marion, Virginia. Has anybody been there? This is National Main Street winner a couple years ago. Really impressed in terms of what they've done. They said, you know what, we wanna fill our downtown storefronts. Probably something that's common in communities across America, right? If you look at entrepreneurship, you know, and I teach some entrepreneurship classes, it's really a three-legged stool. You have to have a great product or service, you have to have some great marketing, and you have to have some financial wherewithal so you, you know, bus don't go off the road, right? And so what Marianne said is, we're not just going to try to fill our downtown stores, we're going to equip these new business owners through a small business camp to make sure that they're on a path to be successful. And if they complete that training through our DDA in our Main Street program, we're gonna provide a $5,000 grant for businesses that are targeted or segments that we've identified through our consumer surveys that we think will be successful. I was just in Marion not too long ago. No, zero, empty storefronts. Since they've launched this, initiative, they had 25 new businesses, 100 new jobs created. Again, willpower with way power. Wrapping it around together. Community not too far from me, about three hours away, two and a half hours, to come see Michigan. So they were always surveying their residents and asking, what is it that you'd want in a restaurant, or in a community, I should say, and it says, you know what we're missing is a fine dining establishment. And so what the community did is was very proactive. First, they didn't have a liquor license to give. I don't know how it is in South Carolina, but in Michigan, you're allocated X amount of liquor licenses based on population, okay? And governmental units can trade, okay? You know, if I have an extra one, you can purchase it or trade something for that. That's how it is in Michigan, okay? And if you're gonna run a fine dining establishment, having a liquor license is pretty important to your bottom line, right? And so they worked very proactively with the neighboring community to say, okay, let's get a liquor license so that our new restaurant has that at their, that tool at their disposal. And then what they did was very innovative. They formed a committee and the committee actually brought in different chefs and they recruited a chef that really, his menu fit the community, both from a taste perspective 
and from a price point perspective. So they had about 15, 17 chefs that expressed interest in running their own restaurant. The community says, we've got the space, we've got the liquor license, but what, prepare kind of a sampling menu for us and we'll select which one we want for our community. So they were definitely driving a bus on this. The result is this restaurant here, the Evans Street Grill, was voted best new restaurant in Michigan a few years ago. It's hitting home run after home run. That willpower and that way power at work. And oh, by the way, hopeful individuals do better in the workforce. About a 14% bump in their work performance. And I think, and I think it's important that we look at the youth in terms of how can we make sure that they have hope in their lives. Because I contend it's critical for their success. And actually the research shows that those individuals, those youth that are more hopeful, generally speaking, have about a 12% increase or one letter grade higher grades than their peers who are less hopeful. That's significant, right? Very significant. In fact, uh, Gallup did a bunch of surveys. Hopefully you can see those. You can kind of see some good things and some maybe concerning things. Eight out of 10 said, I know I'm gonna graduate from high school. That's great. But on the bottom said, side, only less than six and 10 or four out of 10 says, I really don't have a teacher that makes me excited about the future. So that's disappointing, right? So we have to pay attention to this. We have to pay attention as we look at our youth, and all of us in this room want our youth to stay in our communities or perhaps come back at some point, right? In terms of making sure that they have a hopeful perspective. Because I contend it's really rooted in that connectiveness. If they're connected to a community, they have a happy family, a great life, they're more likely to choose that community. So how do we do that? Let me give you a couple of examples of what other communities have done. So Shepherd, Michigan, not far from me, that's snow, in case you guys were wondering what that white stuff is. They uh, have a uh, maple syrup festival. Really cool thing. Uh, they tap I swear, every damn maple tree in that town. Um, you drive down the streets and every maple tree is tapped uh, for their maple syrup festival. And this is a all-in type activity. And it is the youth working shoulder to shoulder with the adults in terms of actually gathering, you can see right here, the sap, loading it up, taking it to the sugar shack, boiling it down, and selling a syrup. And here's the cool thing. The efforts that they raise from this, and that's about 30 or 40,000 a year because everybody wants to buy some of that maple syrup. It's pretty darn good. It funds community youth programs. And they have a youth advisory committee that says, here's what we're gonna fund this year and next year. So the kids are picking what they want to fund in their community. Pretty darn cool, right? So they're helping to raise the money helping to create the marketplace and they get to decide how it's spent. That's rootedness in the community. That's where they feel part in that social connectiveness 
to their community. I think it also extends to listening to them. Sometimes we don't listen to youth in our community. One town we visited was Jonesville, Michigan, and they're only surveying different people. A few years ago, they asked third graders, what is it that you want in your community? That's other age groups, but I'm going to focus on this story. Typical third grade response. You know what they said? We'd like a rock wall. We don't have a rock wall at our playground. We'd like to climb it up. Sounds like third graders, doesn't it? So what a community do? They build it. Says, okay, that's what you want. We'll figure out a way to get it built, and they did it. It's not that big. It's like from me to that wall, a little smaller than that. But I mentioned that they're always surveying different age groups, kind of taking a pulse in terms of where they are every few years. Shortly after this, they asked their community, kind of rate us. They had the highest response from middle school students. I mean, off the chart. I said, what's going on here? We either have a sampling error or there's something that's happening we don't know. So I did a little focus group. And I asked these middle school students, why is it that you're rating us way higher than everybody else? You know what they said? Back in elementary school, we asked for a rock wall and you build it. You know, we can to discount the youth voice, right? We don't provide authentic opportunities for them to tell us what's important. Jonesville gets it. They know that if they want to create hope with their kids, if they want to have their kids come back to their community, they have to listen to them. I think really hope is one of these essential ingredients to retaining youth that plagues so many communities across the country. There's a lot of different strategies. One is to create economic and career choices that are appealing to youth in the younger generation. And I know you're saying that's easier said than done, but I'm not sure that we've exposed the youth to the full scope of opportunities that may be available through youth entrepreneurship programs. This, these slides here are from a um, youth program in Ord, Nebraska, population 2,200 people. Four of their downtown businesses are a direct result of the youth entrepreneurship program they've been running for 20 years in their community. Secondly, evolve community cultures that are progressive and embracing of youth in the younger generation. So if we have a community festival, Perhaps in addition to the fiddlers that we have every year, we provide an opportunity for local garage bands to perform. It's not on a 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, right? And lastly, focus your development efforts on those that want to return to their hometown, those that maybe want to boomerang back to your community. This is a picture from Brookfield, Missouri, population 1,200 people. Sorry, I should have made the picture a little bigger. But you can see that it's a high school graduation, and this is actually at the rehearsal, and they're giving each graduate a gift. I'll tell you a little bit more in terms of what's in that box. Inside that box is a mailbox, actually. 
And each mailbox actually has the student's name on it and a letter from the community. Now I'm going to paraphrase it. Dear Susie, we're so proud of you. We're proud of all the great things that you've done to make our community better. We know that you may be leaving to go off to college or experience new things. We encourage you to meet new people, gain new ideas, experience the world. But always remember, always remember that Brookfield is your hometown. And as a reminder, we have a mailbox with your name already on it. Wow, what a message, right? Usually our message is you gotta get out of Dodge, right? There's no future here for you, right? Brookfield gets it. They know if they have a chance in hell of keeping these kids in their community, they've gotta let them go, but also send a very strong message that, you know what, we hope you come back. And we want you to come back. And as a gesture, we have a mailbox with your name on it. I mentioned earlier that I think hope is contagious. It really spreads like wildfire in terms of one person to the next. We've all been around hopeful people, right? We all can think of people in our community, our family, our friends that are, wow, they're just really excited and hopeful. I think the same exists with hopelessness. I've been in communities that have really a poverty of spirit. And I would venture to say that Braddock, Pennsylvania, had a poverty of spirit before Mayor Fetterman was elected. And when there's a sense of hopelessness, it really weighs us down, right, from a community. So hope, creating hope, really starts with engagement, in terms of engaging our community, in terms of saying, right, how can we create that better future? I'm going to share a video with you about this organization out of Cleveland, Ohio, called Thinkers and Drinkers. Great name, right? And you'll have a chance to kind of hear their story. Hey, it's Thomas Mulready from CoolCleveland.com, and we're here today right outside of the Cleveland Institute of Art in the Euclid Tavern with some folks from Youngstown, John Slanina and Phil Kidd. Thank you guys for being here. No problem. Good Thank to be in Cleveland. Thanks for coming to Cleveland. You guys do a thing called Thinkers and Drinkers, and that's what you're here for uh, today in Cleveland, but you do this mainly in Youngstown. Talk about this, John. What, what is Thinkers and Drinkers? Sure. Well, it's just, mostly it's trying to hang out with a diverse group of people from around the community. So what our model is, we try to invite eight people to the table, someone from a different uh, racial background, but also from different uh, working class background, artists, students, professors, all over the table. They each get to bring one person of their choosing. We all hang out at a table. We throw questions in a hat of their choosing. We pick it out and just hang out. Hours. Right, so you're really talking, uh, eventually this stuff starts out real broad, but, but eventually it gets down to economic development, am I right. correct? Yeah, and that's a lot of what everyone is concerned about. Right. From different backgrounds, a lot of people, right. not even in the field, they want to talk about it. 
Phil, you work for the city in Youngstown? I do, yeah. What's your job there? I'm the downtown director. It uh, started about three months ago, and that was an evolution from the community activist and community organizer element that I started with Defend Youngstown. Right. So you must work on this issue of economic development quite a bit. I mean, this is right up your alley. Sure, quite a bit. And what's interesting is being in the neighborhoods and then being in City Hall, seeing the, the, the contrast there has been really interesting, and I think it's it's helping both ends in right. that regard, the discussions. You've got a cool T-shirt on. It says, Defend Youngstown. That's right. What's this all about? It, there seems to be a real movement now in Youngstown to kind of reinvigorate uh, the place with young, a lot of young people, a lot of young people getting involved. John, you just came back from... Okay. I don't know why he was holding that little stuffed animal. Um, <laughs> maybe if I watched the whole video. But you get the gist, right? Get together a group of people, really a diverse cross-section of the community, throw a name in a hat or an idea in a hat, they pull it out and have a conversation. Says, all right, how are we going to make our community better? And then based on that, then they go the normal channels. If it's a, uh, a planning and zoning issue, they go to planning commission. Or they take it to city commission or park and rec commission. But it provides a forum for people that perhaps otherwise are not involved in their community to have a voice. Okay. I was talking to the individuals. I happened to go to Youngstown and, as we were doing some research, and they shared a story with me. Uh, they said that when this started, they were asked to go to the uh, Chamber of Commerce and talk about their program, Thinkers and Drinkers, and the initiative. And the Youngstown Chambers of, Chamber of Commerce is kind of um, a very traditional uh, collection of individuals in the community. And I don't know if you know much about Youngstown's history economically, but back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s, it was the number three... Uh, steel producing city in America behind Pittsburgh and I think they're uh, no uh, Bethlehem Pennsylvania and then Youngstown and back in the day those were great jobs Man, you worked at the steel mill you were pulling down good money making a great living so anyways the people at thinkers and drinkers were at the chamber luncheon and they were you know talking about things and the conversation really shifted with the Youngstown old-timers, uh, and they says, God, remember those old days back in, where we woke up and we made money, you know? Those were the good old days. If we could just kind of hit the reset button and go back to when we were a steel-making giant in the world. And after this conversation going on and on for a while, these gentlemen finally said, stop it. Stop it! We weren't even born when those companies decided to shut, door, shut their doors and move out of our community. And as long as we keep talking about the past, we're never really going to focus our attention on the future. Right? So just stop it. And I think that's really a problem that plagues so many communities, right? So many communities. You know, we can all go to the coffee shop downtown, right? Where people are pissing and moaning about what's wrong in our town, right? And they kind of create this narrative. I call them cave people. Citizens against virtually everything, right? <laughs> it don't matter. 
But what they do is they kind of set the narrative. And much like hope, positivity really is contagious. And that's where you, as leaders, really have an obligation to kind of set that tone. To talk about the great things that are happening in your community and how you're engaging people and how you have a hopeful vision and moving forward. And I'm sure each of you are doing it today, right? But it's something you have to work at every day because these cave people aren't throwing the towel in and we can't let them set the agenda. It's when we have hope and a vision that we really tip the scales and have positive community change. When we have positive community change in our communities. You know, oftentimes as we've looked at communities, there's a lot of good things happening, right? Every community has good things happening. But sometimes it's a little bit scattered, right? And that kind of chips away at maybe executing that vision that will really accelerate the community's success. Or, as we've seen in some communities, there's a lot of finger pointing going around, right? Sure glad this hole isn't on our end. It's not our problem, right? Or sometimes we are just waiting for the right moment, and that ship has already sailed, right? It's already sailed. It's when we kind of align our arrows in all the good things that are happening that we really get the spiraling effect. The spiraling effect that really allows us to get some wind in our sails and allows us to be successful. One town that I think has done it exceptionally well is Colquitt, Georgia. Has anybody been there? Great story, isn't it, in terms of what they've been able to do based on their culture and who they are as a community. This is actually in a poor region of, of southwestern Georgia, uh, a region that really has a heritage or a, a culture of storytelling, passes on generation to generation. And the community says, you know, we don't want to lose this special part of our community. And they went to some folks in New York City and says, we want to kind of put it in a book. And when the people in New York City said they said, looked at it, they said, oh, you have something really special here, more than a book. You need to really allow others to hear your stories because they're fascinating. And so what they created was really a musical production called Swamp Gravy that transformed this community. It has made this community a destination, a tourist destination, and the spillover effects in terms of from downtown businesses, lodging, dining, they take the proceeds from Swamp Gravy and invest in education in the community has been incredible. The key, the key is to actually institutionalize hope. And I mentioned earlier that all of us in this room knows of individuals that are exceptionally hopeful in our daily lives, right? And so I want you to think about the most hopeful person in your community and how can we empower them to lead to some positive change. 
So one last video before we close out. Cans into liquid assets and dreams into reality isn't easy, but it can be done and has been done by the determined woman to whom Bob McNamara is about to introduce us. It was the biggest day of Maisie DeVore's life. The high school band and her little hometown of Eskridge, Kansas, honoring this 82-year-old's one-woman crusade. And even those who once called her Crazy Maisie were there to open the town's new swimming pool. Are you ready to swim? It was Maisie DeVore's 30-year-long dream. Maisie hasn't seen this sign, so we'd like to show it to her right now. Maisie, it's right behind you, honey. It says Maisie's Community Swimming Pool, made possible by Maisie DeVore. worth 30 years, day in, day out. I knew it could be done. It just took a lot longer for this. <laughs> it was the kids in Eskridge that inspired Maisie's drive for a pool. This is all they've got. It's a ball program. That's the only thing they've got for kids. And every kid isn't ball-minded. They don't want to play ball. But there's not very many that don't like to swim. And so it began. The day Maisie DeVore discovered there was cash in aluminum cans, she launched her mission to start saving for a pool. Nope. Firemen haven't had a meeting. If she wasn't combing the town streets for cans... There you go. Got it. She and her rickety old pickup were scouring every back road in the county. Oh boy, I'll have to get some new wipers. Rain or shine. As long as it runs, I'll keep driving. Every trash bin was on her radar. There. And farmers like Peggy Miller gave her cans. You can't keep her down. She's always doing something. Yeah, she's she's a woman that's well, she's raised four kids, been through two husbands. So she's just a hard-working country woman. That's all there is to it. Yep. I'm proud of her for doing it, because it hasn't been easy. I put my finger in there before and lost a fingernail, so I don't stick it in there too much. But the harder Maisie worked over the years, the more her daughter Marilyn worried. It just kept on and on, and someday she'll come here for lunch. You know, she, she's so exhausted, she can hardly eat. And then, no, I got to go, and we got to mush more cans. Did your kids ever try to discourage you from picking up cans? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Marilyn was on me all the time. What'd she say? Mom, you're never going to get that swimming pool. You might just as well quit that. Yeah, they told me that. But I don't go down and tell them what to do. For some people, it was sad, seeing a woman chasing what they saw as a hopeless dream. They've always made fun of me at Eskridge, but I really don't care. <laughs> Doesn't make that much difference to me. 
I can remember when Rod and I first started dating, that was probably about 10 or 11 years ago, and he had told me about his grandma. Ladine Allen married Maisie's grandson and was as skeptical as everybody else. Tell me, Grandma, bye. Bye. I never came right out and told her I thought she was nuts. But I said, you know, Maisie, are you going to be okay with this if it doesn't happen? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. There's nobody home. It must have gotten discouraging 10, 15 years ago. Oh, I don't know. Ago. I'm not a person that gets downbeat very often. You can let anything get you down if you want to. I think it's just your own attitude. If you think you can do it, usually one way or another you can get it done. And if you think you can't do it, you won't do it. Are you stubborn? <laughs> I guess, or I wouldn't have got this far. I never had things easy when I was a kid, and I guess if I set my mind on something, I'll just keep plugging away till I get it done. If you look at Maisie's pool fund bank account records over the last three decades, you get an idea of how can by can, the nickels and dimes and dollars at a time added up to more than six million cans collected, 90 tons worth, and put more than $83,000 in the bank. And on the day she wasn't collecting or shipping another load to the recycling center, Maisie crocheted afghans and made quilts to raffle off. But all this pile here is extruded aluminum. That's the highest price. She collected and sold scrap metal. And, and that's, that's aluminum, this one's copper. Or she poked through the bushes picking wild berries to sell as homemade jams and jellies to grow the pool fund even bigger. Every hundred dollars helps. Ten of those and you got a thousand. Wow. You've had a busy week. After raising a total of $100,000 and the state of Kansas added a $73,000 grant, the pool's construction finally began before Maisie's eyes just across the street from her own home. Oh, see, so you're starting the pile. Her dream was coming to life. I, I just really couldn't comprehend that it actually was going to come to pass. Even though you thought it was, it still gives you a funny feeling. I got a long ways to go to put tile all the way around that. Amazing Maisie, and, and there's a real truth to it. For 30 years, she kept her dream alive, and she not only kept the dream alive, she kept her heart and her tenderness and her love for people alive. Ladine Allen. I'm glad that everybody did finally come around and, and support her. But I think when we can get her over to that pool and get her in that pool, that's going to be a big thing for this, for her family and the rest of us. Well, congratulations. <laughs> well, I, I really am so happy. Is it okay for the kids to come in? It feels good. It feels good today. What do you suppose the most satisfaction is that you've gotten out of this? Well, I think the most satisfaction is I'll get to watch kids swim.
have fun. They said, the noise will bother you. I said, the noise won't bother me one bit. I don't care how much they holler. <laughs> Pretty hopeful person, isn't she? You know, as we look at institutionalizing hope in our communities, it's, as leaders, sometimes we have to get out of the way, right? We have to learn to lead from behind and really empower people like Maisie DeVore to do their magic, right, and support them, but again, allow them to drive the bus. So think about who you can empower in your community to advance the goals and the visions that you have. So in summary, a couple key lessons. Really, it's hope and vision that kind of come together that create positive community change. You have to have both of them. Focus as community leaders on what your citizens say is their greatest hopes. A good family, excuse me, a good job, a happy family, and a great life. A good job, a happy family, and a great life. And this one kind of takes a little effort, but empower those most hopeful citizens in your community and the youth to lead that positive change. Hope begins, I think, when we listen to our community. <laughs> we have to listen to our community in terms of what they're telling us, right? And then as leaders, we have to act upon that vision and those desires. So if your community is telling you that they're sick, they want action. And I know each of you in this room have the skills and the hope and the vision to make it a reality. So thank you very much for the opportunity to visit with you.